Insightful podcasts by informative hosts. Insights into Things, a podcast network. Welcome to Insights into Entertainment, a podcast series taking a deeper look into entertainment and media. Your hosts, Joseph and Michelle Whalen, a husband and wife team of pop culture fanatics, are exploring all things from music and movies to television and fandom. Welcome to Insights into Entertainment. This is episode 111. Backstories, buyouts, and cancellations. I'm your host, Joseph Whalen, and my considerate and thoughtful co-host, Michelle Whalen. Hi, everyone. How are you doing today, sweetheart? I am fabulous, and you? I am equally fabulous. <laughs> so glad to hear it. So, how was your week this week? Long. Yes. And it's not over yet. Not over. We still got one more day. But hey, long weekend, right? Kind of, sort of, yeah, Kinda, for some. For some of us, yeah. For some of us. You don't have to put a full day in on Monday, though, right? Yeah, here's to hoping. There you go. Hope in one hand and, well, that's not for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That is not. That's not what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about entertainment. What are we talking about today? talking entertainment. We always talk entertainment. Right. So today in our Disney Detective are more virtual cues coming to Disney parks. And get your wallets ready for another Disney auction. Then in our Tales from the Edge of the Galaxy, goodbye, Rangers. We hardly knew you. (laughs) And is Disney finally going to fix the Snoke problem? Nice. Then in our entertainment news, is Amazon taking over the world? They're trying to. Disney might have something to say about that. (laughs) They might. And we'll talk about the passing of a Disney legend. And then we'll finish up with our insightful picks of the week. And we do have an afterthought this week from an event we attended on Saturday? Sunday. Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Uh, And then we'll talk about what we're doing this weekend, too, for those who might have tickets in the area or can get something like that. Sure. But anyway, are you ready to get started? Sure, let's do this. Well, before we get started, I do want to invite folks to subscribe to the podcast you can get video versions of all the network's podcasts listed as Insights into Things. You can get audio versions of this podcast listed as Insights into Entertainment. We are available on Google, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, any place you can get a podcast these days. Uh, I would also encourage folks to contact us, give us your feedback, tell us what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. You can email us at comments at insightsintothings.com. On Twitter, we are at insights underscore things. On Facebook, we are at facebook.com slash insights into things podcast. On Instagram, we are at insights into things. We can get links to all those on our website at www.insightsintothings.com. Ready? Sure. I love the enthusiasm. Here we go. Go for Disney Detective. So it seems that there is a new Disney patent uh, that 
was just registered not that long ago. Um, and the patent is kind of a glimpse into how the company may be addressing what it sees as operational issues. So the patent application was published in May of 2021, and it addresses something theme park visitors dread, waiting in a standby queue. So what they're calling the dynamic management of virtual queues provides a possible solution. Um, obviously, one of the drawback of requiring guests to wait in a queue is the physiological and psychological toll that it actually takes on, you know, a prolonged wait time um, for most guests. As common experiences will testify, waiting in a line that is, you know, at best tedious and depending on the length of the wait and the environmental conditions might also be physically uncomfortable. Um, obviously, you know, other drawbacks of guests waiting in a queue for so long is that it keeps them from enjoying other attractions uh, that are, you know, possibly in the same venue or near the, the same area that they're in, and also potential revenue that uh, the park isn't making from those guests that are waiting, you know, in this very, very long line. So when you <laughs> read through this article, there are all these diagrams and flowcharts and and everything, basically trying to explain what um, each of the patents kind of how they would work. Uh, in some cases, they're very similar to um, the fast pass program that they already have, where you can only make, you know, so many fast passes within a certain amount of time. And once it expires, then you can make, you know, other arrangements. Um, the other talks about uh, being able to kind of pre-validate you so that it would have information about, you know, the age of your children. So if it's a ride that you have to be a certain height for, it might not let you get on the queue uh, for that. Um, so there's all these different variations of it that they that they have that they're proposing. Um, so one would be where, okay, you, you go to get on a line and the wait time is, say, 45 minutes. So it puts you in a queue where you, you're not physically waiting on that line for the 45 minutes. It'll notify you like 10 minutes beforehand that you have to start coming back. And then you could go off and do something else within that area. And then the way that the system from, you know, what I was reading about it, if you go and try and do something else, it knows that you already have a wait time within the next 45 minutes. So that might give you a wait time for an hour and a half, taking into account, oh, it's going to you know, take you, you know, you have 45 minutes to, to do the other ride and then your travel time or, or what else. So it, it, again, it sounds like it's a little bit more advanced than the fast pass system, which as far as I know, they're not utilizing right now. Uh, but they're probably going to be starting it back up because they're opening up capacity in the different parks. Um, now, the only thing as of right now that they're using the virtual queue for is Rise of the Resistance. But with that, 
when it first started, you had to physically be in the park by a certain time to try and get the queue. Then they kind of opened it up and you didn't have to necessarily be in the park, but you had to already have your reservation for that day to get it. But then they were doing like multiple um releases of tickets so they were doing like a 7 a.m they were doing like a 10 a.m and like a 2 p.m you know so that if you didn't necessarily get the first batch you had a second so this doesn't talk about like the time of anything but it does mention you know you would need to have some sort of smartphone uh device to be able to access it um and again it's kind of like a, a melding of the current fast pass system and the virtual queue that they already use. But in some cases, it also kind of reminded me of if you remember when we went to Disneyland and you had the scooter and we went to go to the haunted mansion and they didn't have, you know, a handicap entrance. They gave you a, a handy or, um, I don't remember what they called it, a uh, guest with disabilities pass or something. And they gave us a specific time to come back. So it, it kind of sounds like that where it would be on a bigger scale. It wouldn't just be for certain guests. It would be for every guest. This way they don't have all these people waiting online. You could go and do other things to, you know, be able to do more during right. your day. <clears throat> Well, I have to say, as someone who goes to Disney probably more than is healthy <laughs> and what somebody to say? who hates waiting, mm -hmm. it's about freaking time they decided to throw some technology at this. Mm -hmm. uh, what they did for Rise of the Resistance worked out exceedingly well, I think, mm -hmm. yep. even though you had to be in the park at the time to do it. But they've been throwing technology at ride queues for quite some time now. Mm -hmm. And the whole purpose was to keep you occupied in right. the queue. So they, so in typical Disney fashion, they turned waiting in line into an attraction. Right. And to me, you're still waiting in line. Right. I don't care if there's stuff that I can push and, and screens that entertain me and whatever. Right. I don't want to have to wait in line if I don't mm -hmm. have to. So the concept of this, where we had found out quite some time ago that they were tracking where you were going with your fast, your uh, your magic magic bands. bands. Because they were using it for for photos on rides and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So experimenting with that technology early on to track users in the park seems to – this seems to be the next logical mm -hmm. step to that where they can manage queues now. Mm -hmm. So instead of making the queues longer and giving you buttons to push to keep you occupied – Let's reduce the size of queues. Mm -hmm. Let's give you the ability to schedule yourself around these queues and let's throw technology at it. Mm -hmm. Let's finally use technology to manage the queues, mm -hmm. not manage the, the right. guests. Right. Um, and I think this is a brilliant idea. I hope they roll this out. I can't imagine they're going to roll it out on all rides. Right. I could definitely see them opening it up on the e-ticket rides. Your e-ticket rides. Yeah. You know, your, your big... Your premier rides. Your premier rides, and then you have your lower levels where you have to wait. Okay, so if I'm waiting 10, 15 minutes on a, a smaller ride, at least I can go do that knowing and that my place thing. 
the advantage that you right. have with that is now that you can reserve a place in line through the virtual queues, mm -hmm. it will likely lessen the queues at the secondary rides right. as well because mm -hmm. now you're scheduling yourself around them. Right. So now those secondary queues become your line. Those, mm -hmm. those secondary rides become your queue. Right. You know, that's where you're being entertained is in these other ones until it's your turn to get on. Right. And I could see them also, you know, once things kind of start opening back up, offering more shows, offering yep. more magical things to do to fill your time, you know, uh, while you're waiting for, oh, we got 10 more minutes. What do we want to do? Oh, let's just, let's go get an ice cream or let's go get And I can see that giving you putting the stage shows on in in a manner you know, on based on locations and times mm -hmm. tied to those cues. Right. So it allows them to be more organized in how they're having their talent out there in the first mm -hmm. place. Um, so I, I think this is a great idea. I, I, I commend them for it. Mm -hmm. I hope to see how it works in practice, and, and I think it's going to work out very yeah. well. Yeah. I think you're going to find a lot more satisfied guests in your parks now because of this. Oh, absolutely. So... What else do we have? So this was a story that had popped up uh, from the OCregister.com, uh, and it seems that there is a Disney collection that is going to be auctioned as the collector is selling his home and moving to the beach. So Disney collector Scott Rummel sold his four-bedroom home in California that he and his wife Terry had spent the last 23 years transforming into their own happiest place on Earth. There are assorted ride vehicles, hand silkscreened attraction posters, and other objects from his uh, 25,000 piece Disneyland and Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom collection, which has infused almost every corner of the 4,500 square foot house. Um, but <laughs> unfortunately, the house being sold, none of the Disney stuff was being sold with. <laughs> um, the house actually fetched $2.24 million with multiple offers six, six days after its listing and actually closed at 12% over the asking price. So again, buy, you know, buyer's market. Um, he had said, I didn't want to make it so kitschy that a family couldn't move in or whatever their own spin on the house is. Um, Rummel, who is a Hollywood voiceover talent, plans to relocate to Dana's Point and is auctioning most of his collection. Um, he said the biggest auction where a guy like me sold off his whole house full of Disney stuff got about $7 million in two days. If I do half of that, I'd be very happy. Um, going to auction is all of his big stuff, including four vintage ride vehicles, um, which include a rocket jet rocket, an auto autotopia car, a car from Mr. Toad's wild ride from magic kingdom with the two row seat versus the, the Disneyland version. Um, another is a skyway gondola, which a similar one had actually sold at auction for $600,000 once before. Um, so the gondola actually anchors the upstairs bonus room where it shares space with a 700, I'm sorry, a 70 pound monstro, the whale tooth 
Um, there's a Pirates of the Caribbean pinball machine, hand-painted attraction signs that once uh, were attached to the inside of Disneyland, uh, the Disneyland Omnibus. He also has a 1955 Disneyland opening day pennant that hangs among hundreds of narrow-pointed signs. Um, you know, just looking at pictures of his house, like every room, it's so tastefully done. It's not, you know, overcrowded. Um, his one bathroom is like tiki room themed. He has a brick hallway going to his kitchen that he has a haunted mansion plaque. It, just tons and tons of stuff. Um, you know, one of the other things was that it seems that his grandfather actually helped build the Columbia ship. So he has some artifacts, you know, from that as well. Um, and then one of the areas, he has a Club 33 sign, which was actually a, an original from the park. Um, he's spent time at Club 33 as well. Um, so he had said that he had had his dad's 75th birthday at Club 33. They had their wedding anniversary, their 33rd wedding anniversary at Club 33 and knew, uh, the, one of the sign makers who actually had one of the original signs because they had swapped, uh, some signs out and the guy kept it and he knew, that he was a collector, so they made a trade, you know, for it. So that was one of the things. Unfortunately, that's something that's going with him. So there are things he's actually taking to his house, but a lot of the stuff they are selling. Um, but what's interesting is they're moving, I guess, closer to the beach, and their new home is going to be Caribbean Beach themed from the Caribbean beach resort down nice. in Orlando. So very cool. Um, you know, and it was just interesting looking at all of, uh, you know, his collectibles. Cause it's, you know, obviously some very unique stuff. He actually, um, was also the voice of Disneyland during the nineties as well. Uh, so obviously he has a, a connection and, and got, you know, some good stuff probably, you know, from that as well. So it'll be interesting to see how much, you know, the collection uh, goes for. So, so what of his haunted mansion stuff are you going to bid on? The only thing that he had or that they talked about was just the plaque. He didn't, you know, have anything else. Cause like the one room is all uh train theme. Um, you know, like I said, the one was, uh, tiki room themed. So, you know, now are they doing this as an online auction as well? There was no information, um, actually about when uh, or where it was. So I'll have to kind of do some searching to, to say, uh, you know, what pops up. So I have to, I have to wonder how much of the collection he's taken with him to the new house. Right. Cause you figure, you know, maybe downsizing. Oh, the other thing too was he actually had kind of hidden behind uh, a wall. He had like his own little theater and it kind of looked like the Main Street Cinema. Oh, it had that yeah, Main Street yeah, Cinema yeah. look to it with, you know, a couple of movie row seats and stuff. So that looked, I was like, well, that's really cool. Yeah. That is pretty cool. Yeah. So. Oh, well. Oh, well. So that's it for our Disney detective. Mm -hmm. We'll be back in a minute with our tales from the edge of the galaxy. For over seven years, the Second Sith Empire has been the premier community guild in the online game Star Wars The Old Republic. 
with hundreds of friendly and helpful active members, a weekly schedule of nightly events, annual guild meet and greets, and an active community both on the web and on Discord. The Second Civ Empire is more than your typical gaming group. We're family. Join us on the Starforge server for nightly events such as operations, flashpoints, world boss hunts, Star Wars trivia, guild lottery, and much more. Visit us on the web today at www.thesecondsithempire.com. Go for Tales from the Edge of the Galaxy. So it seems that one of the new Star Wars series has already been canceled. Wah, 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 wah. So it seems that Dave Filoni, the man who made Star Wars The Clone Wars immersive enough to qualify as canon, recently was given a raise at Lucasfilms, courtesy of Kathleen Kennedy herself. Um, so a purist in his own right, Filoni was granted the Herculean task of overseeing overseeing Kennedy's slate of Star Wars projects, ensuring each project remains connected to a larger, more overarching narrative, and in the process, eventually completed. But one of the shows has already been left behind. Bye-bye. Um, and that seems to be the Mandalorian spinoff, Rangers of the New Republic. Um, so the article kind of goes on to say, you know, is it something that because he, they were trying to say, oh, well, because he got the, he got a raise, he's trying to, you know, not do so much and kind of, um, you know, handpick the, the projects that are, you know, the ones that everybody's looking forward to versus, you know, oversaturating. And, you know, the article does go on to, to talk about how, you know, there's just so much that have, you know, had been announced that was going to be coming out. More than likely, something wasn't going to eventually make the roster. You know, they had all these great ideas. And then once they started moving with them, okay, what are, what are, what's the top ones? What can we kind of put to the bottom? Um, Star Wars Rangers of the New Republic was originally going to be the Cara Dune uh, you know, uh, storyline, and she was going to take the reins as the protagonist of the show. Um, obviously, with everything that kind of, you know, went on, is it because of, you know, the downfall of, of everything in her character? Is that why? You know, did they just maybe not see it going in a, a different direction? Not really sure. Um, so, you know, basically, you know, it got canceled or it's on hold, depending on, you know, who you, you're asking. Um, but obviously they have other things that they're working on. Uh, you have the book of Boba Fett, which is the next thing that's going to be, uh, streaming. Um, and then obviously, uh, the new season of The Mandalorian. The cast is already filming in Los Angeles. And then you have Ahsoka. Uh, and Obi-Wan, which are in pre-production, um, and obviously the Bad Batch, which is 
currently on uh, Disney Plus uh, right now, and Book of Boba Fett is supposed to be coming out in December. So, oh well. Well, and you know, when they get announced all those projects, I, I kind of, my first reaction was they're flooding it. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to do too much. Right. I think of all the projects, the one that was probably the least in demand just from a character richness standpoint was this show right and and that's probably you know i think it was kind of hey let's put a whole bunch of different ideas throw some darts and see what sticks right and then the the dissolution of the relationship with the actress that was going to be playing cara dune in Mm -hmm. the series probably was really what put it over the top that this had to be the one that had to go. Right. Now, that's not to say they're not going to do it at some point in time. Right. They certainly have, you know, concept work done on it. They've Mm -hmm. got some script work done on it. So it may just be one of those things that we're going to put this one on the shelf. We're going to do the 50 that we have already. Right. You know, we'll see which, you know, which ones of those stick around. Because, you know, you figure Obi-Wan's a a mini-series, basically. So that's not going to be a long-term one. Right. Um. And, you know, we'll see if we've got resources, you know, later on, then there's a demand for it. I think that's the problem is that they had, they had very ambitious goals with all these projects. I don't know if the demand was there. I think they struck gold and this is what's happened with, with Star Wars under the, the Disney mantra is they've, there was a glut for Star Wars right. for a while. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Disney buys it. They come out with a couple of movies in the Star Wars, the Skywalker franchise. We won't get into whether they were good movies or not, but they tried to branch out from there. Mm-hmm. So you have Rogue One, which was excellent. Mm-hmm. Then you had Solo. Then there wasn't a demand for Star Wars movies anymore. <laughs> um, so... Then they decided to move to TV. Right. So they finished the Clone Wars series, which they Disney had still boggles the mind that they immediately canceled it as soon as they acquired the property. So they finished that. Then they gave you Rebels. Then they gave you whatever the one that came after that that nobody watched. Then they gave you the first live action one with Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. And they knocked it out of the park. Right. So what's the first thing they do? What does Disney always do when they get something that's a great thing? We need to do more of it. They Right. <laughs> more of a good thing is a better thing, right? Right. And you wind up with three spinoffs that came off of this one show. It's like, whoa, guys, hang on. You're only in your second season of this show at this point in time. Right. How about we get some character development in? How about we do a spinoff? Everybody loved Boba Fett. They brought him back into the series, and all of a sudden, he got to, he has his own. He spin-off. gets his own spinoff now. It's almost like every guest star that shows up gets their own spinoff because Disney thinks they can make money off of it. That's like you, you got to stop. You're saturating it again. Right. You tried to do the same thing with the movies. You need to back off a little bit. You need to let the you know it's like wine. Okay, you need to give the wine a chance to age here <laughs> before you you start you know slopping it around everywhere. And, you know, I think this is a sign of that. I think what you're seeing is they've got a couple of very talented individuals that are working there. Um, I I think we're very fortunate that we have Filoni and Favreau who are working on these projects at this point in time. But there's only so much they can do. And I think that's the other thing, too, is that they don't want to fail either. So probably, you know, it's like, all right, now that I'm in charge of a little bit more – 
let's kind of look at things and go, where do we want to focus our energy in the the right place that makes the most sense? And that's probably... Part of the problem they ran into is they painted themselves into a corner. Mm -hmm. So you you take this 35-year time jump from Return of the Jedi to Force Awakens. You offer almost no backstory in between those 35 years. Mm -hmm. And then you play out the rest of the Skywalker saga. Well, then they want to go back and they want to fill in those those blanks. And the problem that you have, and we'll talk about it in the next story, is the the three movies that they put out to sum up the Skywalker saga were a a disorganized jumble of – random thoughts that like it was almost like 15 people wrote the scripts mm-hmm. and everyone got part of their idea in there but you didn't right. have a coherent story anywhere right so now they're coming out with all these other tv shows that are supposed to fill that gap but you don't know what that gap is because you didn't have a coherent story in the first place mm-hmm. so now these are all kind of going off in their own direction here and at some point in time you hope that they lead to where these you know, sequel movies showed up. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now they're not because they're going off in their own directions. Right. So, you know, Rangers of the New Republic was supposed to kind of take you in that direction, but I don't know if that's necessary given what we're seeing in Mandalorian now mm-hmm. and what we're seeing with the other spinoffs with the Book of Boba, with Ahsoka. You know, there's all kinds. What we talked about last week with mm-hmm. Mara Jade coming in. And that's the thing is it might be one of those, you know, aspects that they were going to put into this can be sprinkled among all the others right. to kind of. And that's get exactly it. That because all the Rangers together. of the New Republic show up in small quantities, in small doses in The Mandalorian. Mm hmm. Well, they still can show up in all these other shows. Right, because everybody's all linked right. together. And you probably don't didn't have enough for an actual series of them. Right. But you, these can be those things that tie the threads of the other shows together. Or you could even do, if each of these other shows are all within the same timeline, you could even do a Rangers-themed show in Book of Boba. You can do a Rangers-themed... So, like, you could almost have, like, all the same characters show up, and here's them interacting with Boba, here's with Ahsoka, here's with the Mandalorian, and and kind of have, like, that tie-in... Yeah, when you spin so many shows off of one show... Right. Having... An element that can cross between all of those to tie them together makes sense. Mm -hmm. Not having it as its own show, but having it as recurring characters that you see. Mm -hmm. Like, who wouldn't want to see Dave Filoni in an X-Wing pilot suit again? He would love to do that again. That was so awesome. You know, have him go around as one of the Rangers of the Republic and have him show up in all the other shows. Taika Waititi should, you know, absolutely show up. You know, and that that would be like your golden opportunity Mm -hmm. because they want everybody wants to do cameos. That would be a great way to do cameos in all the shows. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're a ranger now, so you get to be in all the shows. Right. You know that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I I don't know. I'm not disappointed at this. I'm kind of glad they're pulling the reins back a little Mm -hmm. bit, and I think they they might be correcting some of the overambitious ideas that they had with this. Yeah, yeah. 
So what else do we have? All right. So hopefully this will make sense. So it seems that Dave Filoni is now trying to erase the Star Wars sequels Snoke problem. So the Star Wars sequel trilogy has some plot holes at best. At worst, it completely ruined the Star Wars universe George Lucas spent decades upon decades of his life building. So no matter which Star Wars camp you fall into, we can all agree upon the fact that Supreme Leader Snoke was far from the best villain in the Star Wars franchise had ever seen. So Snoke really didn't serve, you know, much of a purpose in any of these movies. Um, his original story was never really fully explained, and his primary purpose kind of seemed, um, you know, to basically allow Kylo Ren to ultimately take over as Supreme Leader, uh, as he was basically a placeholder um, for, you know, Ben Solo without a real story of his own. So it seems that during The Mandalorian Season 2, showrunner John Favreau and Dave Filoni had already started explaining Snoke's origin better than the Star Wars sequels ever did when they introduced Dr. Persing uh, and his clone experiments to Moff Gideon. So now Filoni is kind of picking up where he left off in his latest Star Wars animated series, The Bad Batch. Now, I haven't watched any of that. I know you've watched... A little bit of it. Two episodes behind right now. Okay. So I guess they kind of talk about this a little bit more in the Bad Batch with the various clones and, you know, that uh, it starts off with, um, you know, that there are a bunch of clones that when Palpatine is executing Order 66, they kind of don't understand what's going on. So they kind of go and do their own thing, I guess. They become the Bad Batch. Um, so now a couple of different Star Wars fans have sounds kind like of... A, sounds like burnt cookies. <laughs> bad Batch. Some Sometimes burnt cookies aren't so bad. <laughs> um, so now, you know, a couple of different Star Wars fans have kind of theorized that, you know, the um, Kaminoans... Kaminoans. Kaminoans, that they're, you know kind of toast uh, closely tied to snoke the and that with the long necks oh okay gotcha and that the mandalorians dr uh persing's experiments on grogu and even ray were kind of part of that whole thing kind of meshed together so so again most you know and obviously if we you know go through and and watch more of the bad batch there's probably a little bit more that kind of explains you know, and kind of tries to fix it, I guess, to better understand, you know, where Snoke came from and how he, you know, came to, to power and, and kind of why, um, you know, other things happened later on in, in the series. So again, we haven't, you know, you've watched more than I have, um, but I haven't watched any of it. So again, all these different kind of theories coming in, um, you know, to kind of, I guess, better answer who this guy was and how he, he came to, to power. So, so, so one of the things that that's probably worth mentioning is that in the expanded universe, <clears throat> the concept of cloning existed. Mm -hmm. And even in the prequels, when we had the clones, show up for the Clone Wars, mm -hmm. the understanding was is that 
they could not, the technology at the time could not clone force users. Right. So they could clone regular people. They could make armies out of them and so forth. And it wasn't until in the later books, the Thrawn books, as a matter mm-hmm. of fact, where you start to see them experimenting with force users being cloned. Right. And one of the key ones there was a Jedi that was cloned. His name was Juro Sabat. And he was cloned successfully, but the cloning process and the way that the force works, he goes insane. Mm. So there was numerous experiments that Palpatine was trying to go through in the expanded universe to generate a clone that he could transfer his essence into. So they allude to this in a few other um, canon mediums, one being uh, one of the Star Wars games uh, that you could you can play, and, and the storyline itself goes along with this um, operation that he's that Palpatine had planned, so that if he dies, this operation goes into effect, and part of it has to do with them putting these cloning cylinders in hiding. Um, then you have a few of the novels deal with this, where uh, he's cloning his body. And his essence survives the Death Star mm-hmm. and his essence transfers into the bodies. But because of the power of the force, the bodies, he's basically burning through the bodies. Mm, okay. So he, he can't sustain himself in a clone body for mm-hmm. long. So then we fast forward to uh, Rise of Skywalker and you have that really weird scene where Palpatine's introduced and you see a clone that looks like Snoke in this tube somewhere. Right. And that's supposed to represent the fact that these are his clones that he has been trying to, trying to, to do for so long. Exactly. Right. Um, and then the scenes that we see in the, the Mandalorian, Mandalorian right. are the same thing where they're trying to, to take, you know, Groku's cells or blood or whatever, mm-hmm. and use that to clone a force sensitive body that Palpatine. So that's sort of the, that's the, their expansion, right? Their, trying to their move explanation along. of the expanded universe version of the cloning. And it's supposed to ultimately wind up with Snoke where they couldn't keep cloning the body. So there's speculation that the Palpatine that you see in uh, Rise of Skywalker is Palpatine in his original body because they could not come up with a viable mm. clone. After trying after for... All, right. So Snoke was put in place to run the Empire while they tried to perfect this. Gotcha. In the process. So he was a placeholder, really. Right. You know. But none of that's explained in the movies. Right. So you get this person who is, you know... All-powerful Literally larger than life when you first see him, because you see him as this giant hologram. Right. And then when he finally shows up, he's this frail you know, shadow of a being who ironically looks very much like the species that Palpatine's master was supposed to be. Mm. So there was always speculation about him being uh, Darth Plagueis, but obviously he wasn't. Uh, There was speculation that he was a resurrected version of Darth Vader because of some of the wounds on his face, but he wasn't. So there was all these false cues that mm-hmm. they put in the movies, and then they chopped them in half in the second movie. And there's no explanation whatsoever. Right. So this goes back to what I was saying earlier, that the sequels were just a jumbled mess of 
different ideas that they like everybody wrote down a story plot they threw it all in a hat and they put 10 Hold out them. and that became a movie <laughs> here's our movie <laughs> um so it's a mess it really is and force awakens started the mess but it was it, you know he played to the f- fans with a lot of what he did there mm. And then Ryan Johnson came in and decided, that, well, we're just going to throw out all those ideas right. and come up with a whole new set of bad I'm ideas. Start it all over again. And he decided to start a trilogy all over again with one movie. And then Abrams came in and had it and kind said, of, "Oh, great! Now I got to clean up this." Right. Mess. <laughs> so he Abrams gets handed <laughs> right. this steaming pile of trash and has to sort of pick out the pieces that he can use and try to put some kind of story together. Right. And in the meantime, from from Force Awakens to Rise of Skywalker, you don't have a coherent story. Right. And now all these other shows are trying to trying to clean that mess up. And really, you should just throw out the sequels. Just pr- give me give me what J.J. Abrams did with Star Trek. Okay? Give me a time travel alternate universe and all that happened in an alternate universe. That would be interesting. And then here's the real movies that, that should have been made that this is the real universe. Yeah. You know, let let Luke wake up. You know, give me give me a, a sitcom finale and have Luke wake <laughs> up and it was all a dream and really here's the real movies. <laughs> so I don't know. We'll, we'll see. It's like yeah. they went down the rabbit hole with Force Awakens and they continue to just scratch at a festering wound there and make it worse. Mm. Um, and I don't know how you heal it. I, I just I really don't without throwing out everything. From the last three movies. Yeah, that's kind of... And you can't really go back. And they're trying to retcon a lot of this stuff with with the TV shows now. And you can't because it's 35 years ago. Right, right. You know, there's only so much cleanup that you can do to try to explain the steaming mess that you have. Yeah. Mm. Um, But, you know, thank God for the Mythbusters who proved you really can shine a turd, though. (laughs) And that's what Disney's trying to do here. They're trying to shine a turd. Nice. <laughs> uh, so that was all we had for our, what was that? Tales, Tales from, from the, the Edge, edge of, of the, the Galaxy. Tales from the Edge of My Sanity. <laughs> I uh, like that. That should be a podcast. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be right back with our entertainment news of the week. Insights into Teens, a podcast series exploring the issues and challenges of today's youth. Talking to real teens about real teen problems. Explore issues from braces to puberty, social anxiety to financial responsibility. Each week, we talk about the topics concerning today's youth. We look at how the issues affect teens, how to cope with these issues, and how parents, friends, and loved ones can help teens handle these challenges. Check out our video episodes on youtube.com backslash insights into things. Catch our audio versions on podcast.insightsintoteens.com or on the web at insightsintothings.com. Go for entertainment news. So it seems that MGM soul has now been sold to Amazon for eight point four five 
billion dollars. Billion dollars. <laughs> I was waiting for that. So the tech giant will add a big collection of Hollywood classics and potential franchises to its prime membership mix. In a landmark mega deal, Amazon is acquiring MGM Holdings, whose storied studios boast one of the largest film and TV libraries in a bid to super turbocharge its prime membership offerings to customers and potentially get uh, mine intellectual properties of franchises such as James Bond and Rocky. Uh, the deal, which is still pending some regulatory approval, is uh, valued at $8.45 billion. Um, obviously, it's a treasure trove of, you know, a deep catalog. Um, and the uh, senior VP of uh, Prime Video had said, you know, it's a very exciting and provides for so many opportunities for high quality storytelling. Um, so the acquisition, which was revealed just days after AT&T announced a $43 billion plan on May 17th to spin off its Warner Media division, including HBO and Warner Brothers, to Discovery marks the latest major consolidation to rattle the entertainment industry. Um, so Amazon, who is led by Andy Jassy and Jeff Bezos, uh, they've been, you know, trying to push further into the Hollywood uh, realm of things. Um, so Amazon, uh, which disclosed uh, in April, that it's uh, $175 million, million, not dollar, million uh, prime members have viewed movies on TV shows uh, on its platform in the last year is battling with Netflix, who has uh, 207 million global subscriptions, and Disney has 103 million uh, subscriptions, and they're basically trying to, you know, be on top of, of both of those, too. Um, obviously, Amazon is known for some of its unscri- uh, some of its uh, scripted original content. One of the new series that's coming out is the Underground Railroad. Um, obviously, the Mar- uh, marvelous Mrs. Maisel is a perennial Emmy nominee, um, and then it seems they are going to be coming out with the uh, Lord of the Rings series coming out. Um, Amazon also just earned Oscar nominations this year with The Sound of Metal, One Night in Miami, um, and the Borat uh, sequel, uh, which all came under the Amazon uh, heading. Um, and then it also seems that now they're looking to try and get some live NFL rights, uh, including Thursday Night Football and pulling it from Fox beginning in 2022. So... You know, they're trying, again, trying to take over the world. Um, obviously, there are, you know, the, the MGM title goes back, you know, basically as, as far as, you know, movie history, really, when, when you think about it. So you have, you know, over 4,000 titles, 17,000 hours of TV programming. Um, so you have Bond movies, you have the Rocky movies, the Hobbit films, um, then, you know, you also have, um, you know, the classics like Raging Bull and Moonstruck, Thelma and Louise, Silence of the Lambs. But there's also MGM also produces a lot of um, television as well. So you have the MGM uh, TV, which produces Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale, FX uh, Fargo, 
the History Channel's Viking show. And then, of course, uh, they also do unscripted stuff like The Voice and Shark Tank. So they're all over the place. Um, you know, so this is kind of a big deal, um, especially for Amazon, because it's going to add, again, so much more content that really hasn't been, uh, you know, anywhere. Because, again, it's all kind of over the place, but has never been in, in one location. So, you know, it'll be interesting to, to see how this affects other things, uh, you know, moving forward. This is a, this is a pretty bold move for Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam and I had talked on the, the last insights into uh, tomorrow podcast about modern monopolies mm-hmm. and how Amazon really is in the crosshairs of the justice department right now and the federal government for how much control they have over so many different industries Mm -hmm. and to orchestrate a deal like this and expect it to, to pass muster with the government, I think is very bold. Mm. Um, this is, this is huge. They already control a huge portion of the entertainment industry as it is. Mm -hmm. This is a, a huge leap towards that monopolistic standing there. But I think it's also a sign of the times of the consolidation that we're seeing through various uh, companies that are taking over the entire entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. Disney being, you know, probably chief among those. Right. You know, you've got Disney, you've got Netflix, you've got Amazon, um, Google to a, to a lesser extent with some of their streaming stuff. But the problem you're running into is you've got all these big major multi-billion dollar companies that are gobbling up everything Mm -hmm. and you're going to have three choices. You know, we're going to be back to three networks again, like we were 30 years ago. Right. Um, I don't know if that's good for the market. I don't know if that's good for the consumer. Well, I don't know because now everything, you know, every time you turn on, you know, it's, Hey, this show is coming and it's now moving to, Paramount Plus. Right. Or, Everyone's hey, got this one, platform. and it's Discovery Plus, and it's, you know, like, nothing's on regular TV anymore, um, you know, or they'll do the first season on regular TV, and then everything else moves to a premium channel. So if you want to watch it, now you well, have to... And the streaming model works because... Mm-hmm. It's not dependent on advertising, obviously, and that's right. that's the model that's driven uh, the entertainment industry for you know almost a hundred years now was advertising, mm-hmm. and with advertising, even with Nielsen ratings, when Nielsen would put you know technology in people's houses to right, see what, to they, watch were what watching, they were watching, or right. they would send their surveys out, mm-hmm. you would base your advertising revenue on what that information was, and at best, it was an educated guess. Mm-hmm. With streaming, you don't have that problem. Right, because you know. You know who your customer is. You know what they're buying. You know where they Mm -hmm. live. You know what their ethnicity is. You know so much about your customer now with streaming Mm -hmm. that the streaming model works. Mm -hmm. Not only are they paying a subscription, but these subscriptions that you're paying for aren't all ad-free. Right. You're seeing different tiers in your subscriptions Mm -hmm. now. So for Hulu, for five bucks a month, you get it with ads. For... I don't know, 30 bucks a month, you get it without ads. So it's like they're still making money off of you, but they're mm-hmm. making money with such targeted advertising that it makes sense. That's not where my concern is. 
my concern is all these networks that are streaming now are going to be owned by three big companies. Mm -hmm. And when they're owned by three big companies, the cost to subscribe to these things is going to be astronomical. Mm. As soon as they own all the content and there's no other content, no other independent content out there to go after, then they can jack the rates up. That's how monopolies work. Right. And you're going to find that Amazon and Disney and all the big players in it are going to collude to own the market, to set their own rates. Um, they may not be doing it now. It right. may be competition now, which it is. Mm -hmm. But this is how big industry has worked traditionally for 200 years in this country. Is you have all these independents or all these individuals that get gobbled up into consortiums. Those consortiums become mega, you know, billion dollar companies and a few companies own everything. And once that happens, then they can fix prices. And whenever that happens, the consumers lose out on it. And, and this is another sign of that happening. So good for Amazon. I'm a <laughs> prime subscriber, so I'm going to get to take advantage of all this mm -hmm. stuff, but I guarantee you that my, you know, they're paying Billions of dollars for this deal, your Amazon Prime subscription is going mm -hmm. to go up significantly in the next few years. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. What else did we have? So we had, you know, a little bit of sad news that, that happened the other day. Uh, so it seems that Samuel E. Wright, who was the voice of the Little Mermaid, Sebastian the Crab, and also Broadway's Mufasa, passed away at 74. Uh, the news was actually posted on uh, the Facebook page of the town of Montgomery, New York. Uh, they had said, Sam was an inspiration to all of us and his family established the Hudson Valley Conservatory. Sam and his family have impacted countless Hudson Valley youth, always inspiring them to reach higher and dig deeper to become the best version of themselves. On top of his passion for the arts and his love of his family, Sam was most known for walking into a room and simply providing pure joy to those who interacted with him. He loved to entertain, he loved to make people smile, and he laughed, and he loved to love. Obviously, the majority of people know him as the voice of the Jamaican crab who served as King Triton's advisor and sings one of the most beloved songs in Disney canon. Um, but he also was an accomplished Broadway actor, um, beginning uh, in the original 1971 production of Jesus Christ Superstar. In 1974, he actually replaced Ben Vereen as the lead in Pippin. Uh, in the 90s, he appeared uh, on Broadway in Over Here, The Tap Dance Kid, uh, Welcome to the Club. Um, and then in 1997, he originated the role of Mufasa in the Broadway production of The Lion King, and that actually earned his second Tony uh, nomination. He did television as well. Um, he did, you know, various guest starring roles on All My Children, The Cosby Show, Spencer for Hire. Um, and in 1988, he actually played jazz great Dizzy Gillespie in Clint Eastwood's Charlie Parker biopic Bird. Um, but obviously the role of Sebastian is what most people know him for. And the song 
Kiss the Girl, which was uh, Best Song Oscar nominee uh, for the movie as well. Um, he did other things with Disney um, as Sebastian. There was the Sebastian's Caribbean Jamboree, uh, Disney's The Little Mermaid 2, House of Mouse. Uh, and in 2008, he reprised the role of Sebastian as uh, in The Little Mermaid, Ariel's Beginnings. Um, he had also done uh, voiceover work uh, in the computer animated uh, movie Dinosaur. Um, he is survived by his wife and his three children. Sad news. We, our sympathies go out to the family and friends, but uh, quite a distinguished career. Mm -hmm. And he will live on, obviously, you know, as most Disney characters do. And nothing like uh, Disney to make you immortal, right? Absolutely. So that was all we had for our entertainment news. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back with our insightful picks of the week. Go for your insightful pick. So my insightful pick is a comedy that is actually on the Peacock Network. So again, talking about all those obscure <laughs> streaming uh, channels. Uh, and it the name of the show is called Girls 5 Eva. Um, and so what it is is when a one-hit wonder uh, group from the golden era of girl groups get sampled by a young rapper, the members reunite to give their pop star dreams one more shot. This time, Dawn, Wiki, Gloria, and Summer must navigate the intricacies of a new, more socially conscious society, realizing that their old music wasn't all that uplifting to young women. So it kind of toggles between 1999 and 2021, and the story kind of sheds some light on the fall from stardom and their return to relevance as the women balance spouses, kids, jobs, debt, aging parents, and shoulder pain. Um, so it, it, it's kind of a interesting take, um, you know, to kind of see, you know, all these musicians who had these one hits and kind of faded, you know, from existence and how, you know, do they manage these days? So, you know, the one person works in her brother's restaurant. Uh, the other one supposedly, you know, is this glamorous jet setter when you find out really that she actually just works for an airport and all of her photos that she posts on Instagram are all fake, you know, that she's pretending to still have this high lifestyle, you know, th this big lifestyle that she doesn't even have anymore. Um, and the one is now a dentist. She got a regular job after, you know, the fact. Um, and then the, the other one who married a boy band uh, singer, Basically, they don't even, uh, you know, really live together anymore. Everything's kind of fake. And so at one point, she's on a f FaceTime with him, but it's actually a cameo. So she paid to have this message <laughs> recorded from her husband. So really kind of quirky. It's a really fun cast. Um, you know, so if you're, you know, somebody that remembers the, the girl groups of the late 90s, you know, it's kind of nostalgic to see, you know, oh, this is what happens when, you know, you're in your 40s now and, 
you know, trying to relive uh, your youth, I guess, in in some ways. So really kind of funny. Nice. Good pick. Thank you. So my pick this week, much like last week, I'm digging into the archives here. This time it's uh, digging deep with Hulu. And I pulled out Star Trek Enterprise. So this was a series that originally aired for four seasons from 2001 to 2005. It was the last Star Trek series in what's considered the next generation era that included Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and the Star Trek motion pictures with the Next Generation cast. So set in the 22nd century, a century before Captain Kirk's five-year mission, Jonathan Archer captains the United Earth ship Enterprise during the early years of Starfleet, leading up to the Earth-Romulan War and the formation of the United Federation of Planets. The show takes place during the early pioneering days of deep space exploration, when interstellar travel is in its infancy and the United Federation of Planets is still decades away. Captain Jonathan Archer is the prototype for a Starfleet captain to come. He's bold, intensely curious, and eager to venture where no man has gone before. Unlike the seasoned, sometimes unflappable officers of the 24th century, the crew of Enterprise exhibits a sense of wonder and excitement, as well as a little trepidation about the strange things they'll encounter. With their star charts mostly empty, they'll have to prove they're ready for life among the stars. This was a bold attempt to transition from the post-apocalyptic world seen in the movie Star Trek First Contact to the technologically and socially advanced world from the original 1960s version of the show onward. At times, the show struggles to present itself as technologically inferior to what we saw in the other franchises. Character development through through season one is rough, But by the second season, you settle in nicely with the familiar crew and their idiosyncrasies. The cavalcade of alien appearances is in line with what you'd expect. Some familiar faces, some not so much. Modern prosthetics and CGI bring to life some of the campier aliens familiar to us from the original series. The Andorians, for instance, are more animated, especially their antenna. The Gorn now looks as intimidating as we were led to believe, when we faced a single actor in a poorly fitting rubber suit. (laughs) For the most part, the Vulcans are seen as the overbearing parents to humans rather than the staunch, if logical, allies we know them to be later in history. And there's a whole host of new and interesting aliens. It is worth noting that uh, 2021 is the 55th anniversary of Star Trek. Wow. Which... You know, makes me feel a lot. I, I can honestly say I wasn't there for the original series <laughs> right, airings. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm not that old. Um, you'll find numerous conventions. When I was doing my research, there was tons of conventions going around marking it and various virtual panels and appearances around the world. Uh, one of the biggest ones that's being held uh, is being held August 11th to the 15th. It was originally supposed to be held in December at the Rio All Suites Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The parade of uh, former Star Trek stars appearing at the convention is huge, including Connor Trenier, uh, Dominic Keating. Connor Trenier was the uh, uh, engineer from Enterprise. Dominic Keating was the tactical officer. 
uh, Gary Graham, who played the Vulcan ambassador, who made numerous appearances in Enterprise, and John Billingsley, who was uh, Dr. Phlox on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's tons of stars from every incarnation uh, out there. We'll put a link in the show notes to uh, the actual convention itself. I'd love to go, but I can't imagine we're going to be out in Vegas in August. Probably That's not. That's just not humanly possible for me. So anyway, uh, Golden Oldie here. I'm on season three at this point in time, binging the, the four seasons of Star Trek Enterprise on Hulu. And we'll be right back. So that was it for the show today. But before we go, we did... Uh, have an event that we went to this weekend. Yes, Why don't you tell, we did. Us, tell the audience about that. So one of the events that we kind of look forward to during convention season is Monster Mania. Uh, it's one that's usually held twice a year uh, in two different locations, one in the South Jersey area in Cherry Hill and then another in Maryland. Um, obviously, with everything being shut down, they haven't been able to to do any conventions. So back in March, they came up with an idea to do Monster Mania Mini Mall. Uh, basically, this was going to be an outside event uh, where they would be able to actually have more vendors than they normally would be able to hold uh, in at least Cherry Hill. I don't know what the, the Maryland location uh, yeah, we've never been like, to that We've one. never been to that one, so I don't know if it's a bigger or smaller or, or whatnot. So they were going to be able to, to offer more. The other thing, too, is they were going to have celebrities as well. Uh, that's usually one of the big draws of most of the conventions as well. Um, it was going to be cheaper as well because it wasn't going to be a full-blown convention like they normally do. Uh, it was held at the convention Philadelphia uh, Greater Philadelphia, Greater Expo, Philadelphia Center. Expo Center in Oaks, which we've been to many times, and they actually have an outside area that's fenced off. We had never been to anything that was like that. So you had to go through one gate. They scanned your tickets. You you had to purchase your tickets in advance. They weren't doing anything at the door. Um, it was just two days. Uh, where normally Monster Mania is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Again, more vendor-centric, you know, than than anything else. But again, most of these vendors haven't been able to to sell their stuff to the public, uh, you know, it, in any sort of event. So this was great for them to, to have an opportunity. Uh, they had a couple of different food trucks. Um, they had music playing. Everything, for the most part, was very well spread out. The only issue was that it was hot. Um, Painfully, like 94 degrees. And and it was funny because one of the, the things they had posted, I guess it was... Saturday night before Sunday, they were like, you know, when we pick these dates, we were figuring, oh, we don't want to do it during the summer because it'll be too hot. And here, the weekend that we hit, it's 85 on Saturday and 95 on Sunday. Uh, And unfortunately, at least one of the vendors um, who was there on Saturday wasn't able to be there on Sunday because they had, they got heat stroke. Um, So they were you know, walking around selling bottles of water, you know, when we even checked in, they said, make sure you have, you know, that you're drinking plenty of water and that you're staying cool. Uh, a couple of the vendors that were selling umbrellas sold out. 
we brought our own umbrellas. We brought our own waters. We we were trying to stay as hydrated as we could. I think the only negative, which again, you know, wasn't really that bad of a negative, would have been if they would have had some tents set up for relaxation right. areas. But there's no way for them to anticipate. Right, the exactly. When they were planning this in March. You know, it could have been raining, and then if it was raining, you probably would have had a bunch of vendors not show up because all of their goods would have gotten destroyed in it. So, so, so while we were there, we did take some footage. We mm-hmm. put uh, some clips together for the uh, enjoyment of our viewing audience that we will show you now. <laughs> 